Hello, and welcome to the Strange Matters Podcast. Here at Strange Matters, we discuss anything and everything that is bizarre, mysterious, and unexplained. In this episode, we will be discussing one of the creepiest and downright unnerving mysteries that has ever been covered on Strange Matters. It involves an unusual series of peculiar circumstances, a sudden disappearance, and most disturbing of all, a sadistic and obsessed stalker. This is a rather obscure case, so it wouldn't surprise me if many of you listeners have never heard of this mystery before. I know I hadn't until it was shared with us, so I would like to thank Vicky for alerting us to this case. So, for this discussion, we will be talking about the story of Dorothy Jane Scott. Before I get started, though, I'd like to announce that Strange Matters is made possible by our generous listeners who are supporting the podcast through our Patreon page. We would like to thank our newest supporters of the show, Roberta, Tim, and Laura. On Patreon, you can donate as little as $1 a month towards the show, and as an incentive, all of our patrons will help us decide which upcoming topics we should focus on, and you can even listen to exclusive bonus episodes every month. We are already close to meeting our first goal, which will help cover some of the cost of hosting our website and our audio media content. A heads up to our initial group of supporters, we have just released our first bonus episode, so please check out our page on Patreon to listen in. If any of you other listeners are interested in helping support our podcast, please visit our page at patreon.com slash strangematters, or just visit our website and click on the Support Us page. And now back to the case. This bizarre story takes place in the year of 1980 in Anaheim, California. At the time, Dorothy was a 32-year-old woman, and she was working as a secretary for a business known as the Swingers Psych Shop, which was right next to Custom John's Head Shop, jointly owned by the same man. This business was a known favorite location of the diminishing hippie culture, and was a place one could get a water pipe or bong and generally have a relaxing time. Dorothy had dark eyes and long dark hair, and was by most accounts to be a kind woman and a hard and dedicated worker. Dorothy was also a single mother to her four-year-old son, Sean. For quite some time, her life was quite routine and uneventful. Dorothy was actually referred to as being somewhat dull to be around. She didn't go out very often with any friends, but instead mostly just kept to herself and her young boy. At some point, though, things began to change for Dorothy. Her life soon would take a more sinister turn, as her previously dull and routine life would begin to be interrupted by phone calls. For quite some time, several months in fact, Dorothy was starting to get frequent and disturbing phone calls from a supposed stalker. Dorothy would get these calls while she was at work. While on the phone, Dorothy would hear a man's voice who she could not quite recognize. At first, she might have thought the first few calls could have been a prank or perhaps someone just trying to mess with the business. But the calls soon became personal and began to reveal a more chilling and downright creepy motive. As the phone calls continued, this mysterious person swore to Dorothy that he was watching her every move. To prove this, the male voice on the other end began to talk about in great details describing what Dorothy was doing in her life. This caller seemingly knew what Dorothy was doing nearly every minute of every day. He would tell her what she had done the day before, where she was planning to go later in the day, and even what clothes she was wearing. Obviously very upset and disturbed by this fact, Dorothy began to feel quite helpless and unsafe. This is perfectly understandable, 
for myself or any of you listeners if some strange, unidentifiable person was calling you all the time and saying that they were watching and knows what you were doing, knows that you went to the grocery store yesterday or you go to church every week and what gym classes you always attend, it would certainly scare anybody. How are you supposed to defend or reason against someone who you have no idea who they are or why they are doing this? For herself, Dorothy started to take karate classes in an attempt to feel more secure and also as a way to defend herself if the stalker ever showed up. This seems to be a reasonable excuse and reaction as to what was happening in her life. I have heard from some people who began taking some type of martial art because they were being bullied or perhaps they got mugged and wanted a way to fight back. I myself did a few years of judo and grappling back in college, mostly for exercise and enjoyment, but it also definitely made me feel safer when I was walking along the city streets late at night that I knew how to handle any type of physical confrontation. As well as beginning to practice karate, Dorothy had also talked to someone close to her about her fears and discussed buying a handgun for extra protection. Again, this would make perfect sense to me. For those listening outside of America, this might seem a bit extreme, but again, I know of several examples of people who either got jumped one night or their house got broken into, and one of the first courses of actions were to go buy some guns. Dorothy, though, never went through with purchasing a firearm, perhaps thinking that step was too drastic. But in any case, it is something to think about how the following events might have changed if she was armed in some way. As time went on, the strange phone calls continued. Sometimes the caller was rather pleasant or calm, but other times he would be sinister or threatening, telling Dorothy he was going to take her away and do her harm. One day the voice would take the tone of a secret admirer, while the next he would be resentful and promise violence. One thing I have not heard of while researching for this case is whether Dorothy ever got the police involved. As far as I'm concerned, if I was getting some type of mysterious series of calls threatening me, it would only take a few times before I went to the police, and I think the same would apply for basically the average person. For Dorothy, though, she did not get law enforcement involved with these threatening calls, and really didn't tell many others what was going on besides a few co-workers and a family. Perhaps Dorothy thought eventually the stalker would go away, or that he wouldn't take his promises of abduction and violence too seriously. Maybe she was embarrassed or too shy to ask for someone's help in this manner. In any case, for the weeks and weeks that these calls continued, Dorothy was more or less handling it all on her own. May 28, 1989 was a seemingly typical Wednesday for Dorothy. She would drive her son Sean to her parents' house so that they could babysit while she had to head back into work for a meeting. Nothing in the short encounter with Dorothy and her parents would give the hint that anything was amiss or unusual. Soon afterwards, Dorothy would arrive at the joint business of the Swinger Psych Shop and Custom John's Head Shop, and the meeting began. Through the course of this meeting, Dorothy noticed that one of her co-workers, a man named Conrad Bostron, was acting quite restless. As time went on, it became obvious that the man could not sit still and was in some type of discomfort. At some point, it was pointed out that there was an alarming-looking red streak on Conrad's arm, which was getting worse by the minute. Seeing their colleague in obvious distress, Dorothy and another co-worker, Pam Head, volunteered to drive Conrad to the hospital. With that decided, the trio left the business, and Dorothy drove her car to the UC Irvine Medical Center. 
Along the way, though, Dorothy took a quick detour to her parents' house, most likely to check on Sean and to alert them that she might be late into the night, since she would be at the medical center. When the group arrived at the hospital, the doctors quickly figured out that Conrad was suffering from a black widow bite, and immediately began treating him. In the meantime, Dorothy and Pam talked some and spent their time in the waiting room, reading magazines and shooting the breeze with those around them. A few hours later, Conrad was able to be discharged, with his wound treated, and the three made plans to head back. While Pam helped Conrad back to the pharmacy, Dorothy told them that she would go out and get the car to pick them up. Conrad got his medicine, and the pair waited by the entrance, waiting for Dorothy to show up. After a few long minutes of waiting, Pam glanced out a nearby window to look into the dark parking lot to see what was taking so long. As she looked, Pam saw that Dorothy's car was finally coming around. Dorothy's vehicle came towards them with its high beams on, the bright lights blinding the pair from seeing much of the car at all. As the two watched their co-worker's car approach, they simply stared as the car rolled past them. Suddenly the headlights went out. The pair could only look on confused, as instead of stopping for them, the car just sped right past Pam and Conrad. Pam ran out and waved her hands, perhaps thinking Dorothy had somehow just completely missed them, but the car kept speeding off until they lost sight of it into the darkness. That would be the last time they would ever see Dorothy Jane Scott. Pam and Conrad waited for some time back at the hospital, baffled at what had just happened. After two hours of waiting and seeing if Dorothy would come back, Pam alerted the medical center's security about the strange occurrence and also called Dorothy's parents to see if maybe she had gone back to their place for some reason. However, they had not seen their daughter or knew anything either of what was going on. When the police showed up to ask questions, Dorothy's father, Jacob Scott, said, Dorothy would never leave anybody like that at the hospital. If she took them there, she would not leave them. She wouldn't just up and leave them. That wasn't her way. She was the most caring person I've ever known. In a disturbing find in the early hours of the next morning, Dorothy's car would be found burning in an alley in Santa Ana, ten miles from where she had seemingly raced past her two co-workers. This just led to more confusion, as there was no trace of Dorothy's body in the car or the surrounding area. The police simply had no idea where she was. Unfortunately for Dorothy's parents and co-workers, she would not show up the next day or the day after. Even worse, there were no signs or clues as to where she might have gone or been taken. Time stretched on as the police searched for any type of clue that could help them figure out what had happened to this woman and why she would simply drive off and vanish. However, with the high crime rate of the city, law enforcement just couldn't put too much time into figuring out what had happened. They had no evidence or leads to go off of. For all they knew, she had just run away herself, despite the claims of those who knew her best. For the time being, though, the police asked Jacob and Vera, Dorothy's parents, to keep the details of her disappearance to themselves, while they did what they could to work the case so it didn't turn into a big media event. If it was a kidnapping, the police were waiting to see if some type of ransom would be demanded from the family. So, for days, Dorothy's family had to simply wait and hope that either the police could find their daughter, or that she would turn up herself. As strange and unnerving as this mysterious case has been, things suddenly took a much darker turn. A week after the sudden vanishing, Vera Scott was alone in her house when the phone rang. 
Vera picked up the phone and answered, and she heard a gruff male voice which asked her, Are you related to Dorothy Scott? Vera confirmed that she was, in which the voice replied, I've got her. Before Vera could respond or even process what had just been said, the caller hung up. Besides telling the police what the caller had said, there was nothing to be done. Frustrated, Jacob Scott finally went to the media and told them about his daughter's disappearance. And soon thereafter, they ran a story describing the weird events leading up to her vanishing. The day after the story was put out in the Santa Ana Orange County Register, the managing editor of the Register, a man named Pat Riley, received a phone call. The unidentified male voice on the other end of the line claimed that he was Dorothy Jane Scott's killer. Though Mr. Riley may have initially believed this to be a hoax or some type of sick prank, the caller proved him otherwise. This mysterious caller was able to give details to the editor that they had not even put in the article. He somehow knew that Conrad Bostron suffered from a black widow bite, and that Dorothy was wearing a red scarf at the time. Furthermore, the man said that he had met Dorothy at the hospital and accosted her by being with another man, which she denied. This man proclaimed that she was my love. Perhaps more disturbingly of all, this man was also heard to mutter, I killed her. As creepy and unusual as this phone call to the editor was, it didn't really provide any concrete clues or evidence as to what Dorothy's fate actually was. There seems to be little doubt that whoever this caller happened to be, he did have pertinent information about the night of Dorothy's disappearance that was only known amongst a select few. Could this caller be the man who had been stalking and harassing Dorothy for months? To me, taking into account all the information up to this point, there is little doubt that whoever made the call was the same man who somehow forced Dorothy to drive off from the hospital, and the same man who had been calling her over and over. Still, as interesting as this mysterious man calling was, again, no new leads or information regarding the case came out of it. However, this mysterious caller was not done. In fact, he would start a new cycle of disturbing phone calls that pushed this case into even darker grounds. Nearly every Wednesday, the phone would ring at the Scots' house, and again the mysterious voice would tell Vera that he had her daughter, sometimes saying she was killed, others that he was keeping her captive, and sometimes simply asking, is Dorothy there, before hanging up. The police began to record the tapes and tap the Scots' phone line, but unfortunately the calls were so brief they could never be traced. The man's voice was also obviously disguised, so there was no chance of being able to pinpoint or recognize who it was, even if the Scots knew the perpetrator in their lives. These terrible calls made to the house were always picked up by Dorothy's mother, Vera, and they went on and on, every week a new call for the stalker to torment the family, always changing his stance from having murdered their daughter to simply holding her. These calls continued on, lasting four years. They only stopped in the spring of 1984, when the usual call was made to the house, but this time Jacob Scott picked up instead of his wife. The caller almost immediately hung up after hearing a new voice responding to him, and suddenly and without reason, the stalker ceased his tormenting calls. Jacob Scott could only speculate that upon hearing an unfamiliar voice, the caller might have thought that perhaps a new family was now living in the house. 
Regardless, for the first time in nearly four years, the family had peace from the sadistic caller. But this peace would not last, as finally after those long years of waiting for any type of answer as to their daughter's whereabouts, a startling discovery would be made. Later in the summer of 1984, a construction worker was strolling along the brush off the road of a section of Santa Ana Canyon Road. This man had the bad luck to stumble across some skeletal remains. The authorities came to the scene and investigated what he had found. What he had first seen was actually the remains of a dog. However, underneath the dead body of that dog was a pile of human bones. Scattered among the bones, the police found a turquoise ring and a watch. When showed these belongings, Vera Scott knew right away that they belonged to her daughter. A few days later, dental records prove that the remains did in fact belong to that of the late Dorothy Jane Scott. The family grieved the loss of their daughter, but just based on the circumstances of her disappearance and the constant calls of her stalker, I believe that most likely they knew in their hearts all along what had happened. A few days after the police confirmed the identity of the remains as Dorothy, the story was run in the local papers. The community now knew what had happened to that woman who had mysteriously gone missing four years earlier. And just a few days after the papers had come out, the phone rang in the Scots' house. Upon answering, Vera heard a now-familiar voice ask, Is Dorothy home? Now that we have gone over all the facts of the case, let's go back and start discussing some of the more interesting unknowns and aspects of this mystery, as well as go over some theories. First, I want to talk a little about the stalker himself and any clues we have about him. One of the big questions, beyond the obvious who was he, is whether Dorothy actually knew who he was. Now, I have read in some sources that Dorothy mentioned that the caller almost sounded familiar, but she couldn't quite place the voice. However, the police did have some of the recordings of the brief calls received by her mother, Vera, but the voice was obviously disguised in a way which most likely prevented law enforcement from being able to match it against any possible suspects. The caller was obviously smart enough also to alter his voice enough to throw them off, as well as keeping his calls so short that they would never be able to trace them with the level of technology that was available in the early 80s. So to continue on in this thought, given the facts of the case on first looking it up, I figured the obvious choice would be one of her ex-lovers. If it was someone she had been intimate with in the past, perhaps she thought that they would eventually go away or would never actually do her harm. The police did investigate the father of her four-year-old son, but he had an alibi and was not even in the area when Dorothy disappeared. And as I mentioned earlier, Dorothy wasn't exactly a very sociable person. One co-worker referred to her as being dull as a phone book, and she was not known to date men or at least not enough to have any boyfriends that were known about. Her daily routine seemed to be entirely focused only on her job, and then going back home to take care of her son. Knowing this, I haven't seen any evidence or statements that she had recently met or went out with a man to get romantically involved, who could have later become an unbalanced, estranged lover. Now the question becomes whether the stalker actually knew Dorothy and his personal life before this all started or if it began as a random obsession. Most people would probably lean towards the notion that this man had to have at least some type of relationship with Dorothy, or knew her in some way. 
the thought of some psycho randomly selecting a person to begin stalking nonstop might sound like something that would come out of a B-level horror movie. I myself know a few people, both male and female, who had been harassed or continually bothered by an ex or someone who thought the relationship was more than it really was to the point where it made them feel uncomfortable or even endangered. So if you had to pick between whether the stalker had been in Dorothy's life in some way or as a complete stranger, you might lean towards the former being a more realistic option. I've spent the better part of a week reading up on forums and message boards about this case, and a lot of people seem to agree with that idea, suggesting maybe it was a coworker or a boss or a neighbor or even a long-lost boyfriend. However, I personally would not rule out the other side of this topic, that the stalker did choose his victim by random chance. Those who are longtime listeners to this podcast probably know by now that I have a morbid curiosity surrounding serial killers, as I have researched quite a few in the past years. While reading over this case and thinking of the possibilities of who the murderer was, I couldn't help but think of one of America's most infamous serial killers, Dennis Rader. Rader, who went by his self-appointed nickname, the BTK Killer, standing for Bind, Torture, Kill, and generally regarded as one of mankind's biggest douchebags, murdered 10 innocent people during his years of operation. The thing about Raider, though, is that he didn't really have a specific type, as his victims range in age from 9 to 62. His usual MO was to wander the city until he found a potential victim, by complete and random chance. And at that point, he would begin to stalk that person for weeks at a time, until he had memorized the intricate details and pattern of their lives before deciding the best time to strike. Now, Raider is far from being the only killer who stalked random victims for long periods of time, but I think it helps provide an example case of someone who has a violent and psychopathic tendencies willing to target a complete stranger. So while others who have researched this case may disagree with me, I would not be surprised at all if Dorothy's caller and killer had no previous interactions or involvement in her life before he made his decision to base his own life on following hers. It is clear that the stalker knew many personal details about Dorothy. During their phone calls, he mentioned over and over that he was always watching. To achieve this level of surveillance, this would mean either this man was around Dorothy all the time, like being a coworker or a neighbor, as some would suggest, or he otherwise had some other way of being able to keep eyes on her 24-7. If so, the man would have to be either unemployed or work part-time or maybe hold a night shift, as it seems during the day he was able to keep tabs and follow Dorothy wherever she went. It could be that this man followed her for weeks before he even made contact with her, learning her daily routine until he had it memorized. One of the big points of interest in this case is how the killer knew Dorothy was at the hospital. There are several theories as to how this happened. Some think that the stalker might have called the workplace to see where she was, and someone there let it slip that she had taken someone to the medical center. Perhaps he had been waiting for her to return home, and when she was running late he got impatient or agitated, and decided to call to her business to see what was going on. It's possible, but to me the obvious one is that he was actively following her that night. I believe he was either waiting outside of her work, 
or stalking out by her parents' house waiting for her to come pick up her son. However, this night, it was different. She was not following her usual strict routine, which she was known for. She was driving around with two other people. More importantly, though, she was driving around with another man. In one way or another, her stalker did find out that she was at the hospital, and for an unknown reason, he chose this particular night to finally strike. This is yet another big mystery surrounding this case. Of all the times to finally abduct the woman of his obsession, why this night? Again, there are a couple possibilities. Perhaps the stalker saw that Dorothy was leaving the hospital alone, walking through a dark parking lot, and just instantly figured out right then and there that it would be the perfect time to go after her after all this time of watching. One idea that I've seen around that seems pretty interesting to me is one I alluded to just a minute ago. The fact that Dorothy was driving around and spending time with a man might have sent her stalker over the edge. It is clear now that the stalker seemed to believe that Dorothy was his love, and he continued to persist that she belonged to him. Seeing her spend time with another man, even if it was just an emergency visit to a hospital, could have stirred up his feelings of resentment and violence towards her, and caused him to erupt. It seems the caller was reaching a boiling point, so to say, in any case, as he was getting more aggressive and violent with his calls to Dorothy. Vera Scott mentioned that her daughter got one call just shortly before she disappeared that upset her horribly. And perhaps the most disturbing call of all, Dorothy heard the voice on the phone growl, Now you are going to come my way, and when I get you alone, I will cut you up into bits so no one will ever find you. There is even a theory that her abduction at the hospital just happened to be a complete coincidence from the phone calls that Dorothy had been receiving. In this explanation, she did have a crazy stalker-like caller, but one who never physically interacted with her at all. So, following this theory, later when she was leaving the hospital going to her car, some other person, or perhaps group of people, snatched her up, entirely unrelated to her stalker. Then, this separate person who nabbed her made the decision to call the editor of the local paper and give the details to prove who he was, and maybe started to call the Scots again by complete coincidence. To me, this just sounds a little too far-fetched that not only did Dorothy have an obsessed caller who promised her that he was going to take her, but that she had a random encounter with a, another criminal who actually did take her instead. I think this just doesn't make any sense when you take into account the whole picture of the case, events happening both before and after the disappearance. Plus, I just don't think anyone can be that unlucky. There is some debate as to the order of events once Dorothy leaves the hospital for the parking lot. No one is sure what exactly happens, but there are several likely scenarios. It seems obvious that the stalker in some way caused her to drive recklessly off into the night, abandoning her co-workers behind. It is unknown if the stalker attacked her in the parking lot or waited till she got in the car before he made his move. Because of how the high beams blinded Pam Head, who was looking out the parking lot when the car was approaching, it is also unknown if Dorothy was being forced to drive, perhaps at gunpoint, or if the stalker had knocked her out or tied her up, and that he was driving himself. Either way, whatever happened didn't happen suddenly, 
since Pam and Conrad had time to finish up their business at the hospital and then wait around for a few minutes, wondering what was taking so long. This leads me to believe that there was likely some type of physical confrontation. Maybe Dorothy managed to fight back for a short while before her attacker could completely subdue her and take control of the situation. There are a few lingering questions about this case where there isn't enough information to do anything other than take a wild guess. Perhaps the biggest question mark of all is, how exactly did Dorothy die? Unfortunately, the investigators could not determine the cause of death. Only a skull, pelvis, one arm, and two thigh bones were discovered at the site of her remains, and they yielded no clues as to what killed her. Also, why was a body of a dog placed on top of her remains? Jacob Scott can think of no connection as to why it was placed on top of his daughter's bones, since she didn't have a dog or take care of any. This makes me think that perhaps it also belonged to her stalker killer. One of the most intriguing and foreboding questions I've been wondering about is whether Dorothy was the only victim of this man. Due to the lack of any type of evidence as to who he was, as well as not being able to determine an accurate cause of death, makes it nearly impossible to link this crime to any others, even if there are a few cases that have some similarities. As of now, barring a complete confession from the man behind the crime, or some miracle discovery of vital evidence, it looks like there will never be an answer to any of these questions regarding this bizarre mystery. The story of Dorothy Jane Scott makes for one of the creepiest mysteries I've ever encountered. The fact that there are so many unanswered questions, confusing angles, and incomprehensible turn of events make this one of the most memorable cases that I have come across in quite some time. I'll be honest in saying I will almost be glad once I have moved on from this mystery. As for the past week or so, I have been thinking about it for most of my spare time, staying up late at night trying to think of new possibilities or wondering nonstop what happened to her at the hospital, and more importantly, what happened to her after that. I'm sure that for some of you listening to this case now, or those who go on to delve into this creepy mystery even further, that you will end up feeling just as terrified of the whole thing as I was. Thank you for listening to this episode of Strange Matters. If you would like to discuss this episode further, perhaps you disagree with some of my ideas or would like to share a tidbit of info that I left out, please feel free to write us at strangematterspodcast at gmail.com. You can also visit our website at strangematterspodcast.com to listen to, comment on, and download all of our shows. Strange Matters is a member of the Dark Myths Collective. Dark Myths is a group of like-minded podcasts with shows that span a wide range of genres, from mystery and true crime to history and even fiction, which all explore the darker side of human curiosity. For our listeners looking to branch out or looking to find another great podcast, please check out the whole lineup at darkmyths.org. The featured podcast this month is one of my personal favorites, the Eastern Border Podcast. This is an excellent history-based show dealing with the strange and fascinating history of the Soviet Union and its impacts on the people living within it. Chris Stops, the host of the show and a friend of our podcast, who we have worked together with in the past, does an excellent job running that show, so please check out the Eastern Border Podcast. And finally, we ask if you enjoy the show and have a minute to spare, please leave us a rating and a review on iTunes. 
It means a lot to us to hear your feedback, and it also helps promote the show so that we can reach new listeners. And so until the next episode of the Strange Matters podcast, take care.